This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning. It's so good to see you guys, to be back after being out last week following ACL reconstruction surgery. Uh, That's my first time to do surgery kinds of things, and it's a unique experience. I had to admit both to my wife and to Jake a few days after, all right, this is a bigger deal than I thought it was going to be. So there you are, which really hit me when I went into the surgical center and you know, I'd worn shorts so they could work on my knee, and I came in, and they gave me a little pair of booties and a little reverse nightgown, and I said, I don't, I wore shorts, um, and that was unsatisfying to them, so they put me in what passed for barely anything, and I climbed on a bed, and they strapped monitors on me, and I was like, oh, we're doing this thing, right? This is, this is not, this is more than I, I thought, so... Anyway, glad to be back with you guys uh, this morning. Let me tell you a little bit about where we're going um, this month and then through the summer. Um, We have spent the last 11 weeks walking through uh, the first chapter of Colossians. We're done with Colossians 1 now, uh, and this month we will likely finish the rest of Colossians. That's how many of Paul's books go. Um, He starts with rich, deep, profound, significant theology and moves into application as we get through the halfway point of a letter. Uh, We will certainly finish uh, Colossians chapter 2 this month, and we may be able to throw in 3 and 4 as well and complete it. Wherever we are at the end of this month, we'll pause, whether we finish chapter 2 or we've been able to finish the whole book. And then we will kick off a new series through the book of Acts, eight weeks in Acts this summer where we hope to see God uh, realize in our hearts and minds the fact that we're made to be on mission with him in the context of a gospel-centered community. We're wired for that. Our hearts yearn for that, even though often we don't realize that and we don't connect the dots that so many of these other things we're pursuing, we're hungry for, we're wanting Uh, We're using to satisfy this place that we have been called into Christ and into the church to be a people on and about mission. Now, along with that series, we're going to launch uh, summer home groups. We don't have Wednesday night activities through the summer. So uh, in place of that other weekly commitment, we're going to launch summer home groups. And these small groups that meet in homes throughout the week will be sermon-based. So it's going to be a really exciting eight weeks as we get to hear from God on Sunday morning and then gather in small groups and homes throughout the summer, the following week, sort of breaking down that message and that text and talking about how it applies to us and how we um, live that out in our lives and asking one another questions and praying for one another. So you'll hear a lot more about that next week and be able to begin signing up for home groups this summer. Excited about that. There are just different kinds of things that happen in homes than happen uh, anywhere else, and different kinds of things that happen in the evening than happen if we're doing Bible study or we're doing some kind of group at 8 or 9 or, or 10 in the morning. Funny thing happened in our home this week. Some of you guys have graciously been bringing meals since my surgery, and, and uh, some of you, many of you know Elena Smith. Uh, Elena brought us uh, a really great meal toward the end of this week, and a, 
Elena is, is always appropriate and sweet and kind and um, you know, she just uh, is what you would imagine a Southern woman would be. So uh, she was in there in our um, home of chaos with twins running around half-dressed and teenagers doing their things and uh, all that that implies. And as she was getting ready to leave, um, she was heading toward the front door. Standing at the front door, we were talking. And Zeke, one of our three-and-a-half-year-old twins, has these cute puffy cheeks um, he looked up at Elena, and the boys were so excited when she pulled up. Miss Lena, Miss Lena, uh, they work, she works with them some in uh, LM Kids. And so they were super excited to see her, and as she was getting ready to go, uh, Zeke looked up and smiled at her and said, Thank you for dinner, poopy butt. Mm, mm. And I so wanted to say, I, I'm sorry, Elena, I apologize for all we are and all we're not and all we thought we'd be but never will be. I just... You know, we wanted to be good parents, you know. We wanted to raise kids that were appropriate and love Jesus, and so we're, uh, we're on that place now. But, but people are more comfortable at home. <laughs> sometimes that does not work in your benefit, uh, and sometimes it does. And in small group environments, it very much does. So I really encourage you, whether or not you're part of a Sunday morning Bible study class on Sunday, you keep that going. Um, uh, many of you just uh, are here on Sunday mornings, but not a part of a smaller group. I really encourage you to sign up uh, and take that run with us this summer. We know you're going to miss some weeks, but you'll be glad that you were there. All right, let's jump into um, Colossians chapter 2, but we're going to back up, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 24. I won't, uh, I won't expound or, or work too much on uh, chapter 1, verse 24, that is, on uh, verse 24 through the end of 1. You guys covered that last week. So we'll be centered in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But Paul's thought here really starts at verse 24. And so I don't want to jump in mid-thought. I want to at least read his, his full thought. So let's look at Colossians chapter uh, 1, verse 24. And what you're going to find here by the end is that you um, are saved as you come in response to the Holy Spirit to repent of your sin, not just your sins, but your nature, corrupted nature, as a sinner, a re rebeller before God, and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he is who he said he was, that he has done what Scripture testifies he has done. He's taken your sin and your punishment and the destiny that was required of you on himself, and you've been set free in him. But what you're going to find this morning is you're not just saved into individual freedom and a right standing with God. There's more to it than that. Let's look at verse 24 of chapter 1. Now, I rejoice, Paul writes, in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul says, I'm happy to suffer for the sake of the church, to labor for the sake of the church, which is you, is the people of God. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden. Now, don't miss this in verse 26. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope 
of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature. This, this fullness of maturity um, among the people of God, in the lives of the people of God, is the goal, Paul says, for which he is contending and striving. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Encouraged in heart and united in love. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Part of what Paul is saying here is that when there is discouragement, chronic kind of discouragement in our life, and there is disunity in the fellowship, what we fail to receive is nothing short or nothing less than the full riches of complete understanding. And that's given in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Now, Paul gets right at it here, right? He takes a big swing at it when he says, uh, the mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he goes directly to the center. The mystery of God is, is not something even functional. It is the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We need to understand this in a day when we are so busy scrambling to find answers for everything everywhere else, right? Everywhere else. We go everywhere we can. Dr. Laura, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Phil, Dr. Pepper, anywhere to try to find answers for what has us unsettled, for what's going to make us happy, for what's going to make us fulfilled. For what's going to put our lives back together, our marriages back together, what's going to hold our kids in a safe place. And Paul is writing to the Colossians as God is speaking to us today because they had the very temptation that we do to go anywhere and everywhere around them listening to all of these other voices. And Paul says, you already have it. You already have the key to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they're hidden in Christ. And I like that Paul is not ashamed to say they don't come easy. They require some work. They require some inconvenience for us to mine up and dig up all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are ours by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Paul gets down to verses four and five to tell them why um, he's writing about this. He says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Fine-sounding arguments, right? It's not the, the whacked-out stuff that you and I tend to believe. When someone speaks who's just crazy, we tend to think, that person's crazy, right? If Jesus comes, uh, or somebody comes to a small group and tells you Jesus was really a pumpkin, you're not going to struggle to believe that, I hope. You might even look to get them help, right? 
But if they came to say, well, well, you know, come and say, well, Jesus did so much, but even Jesus had to be baptized. Therefore, it's, you, you've got to accept Jesus and you have to be baptized to be saved or whatever the case may be. He says, I don't want you deceived by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. I think every pastor who loves this church and preaches regularly to them knows what Paul means there, that wherever you may be and wherever God's spirit may have you in a given week or at a given time, if you're traveling, you are certainly present with the people you know and love and walk with weekly in spirit. He said, and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Now, let's go up and let's look once again at verse 26, and then we'll drop back down to chapter 2. Paul says that this mystery that he's talking about here, and he uses the word three times in just a few verses here. The mystery has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now has become disclosed to the Lord's people. He refers to this mystery again, as we just saw in two different ways. Christ in you, the hope of glory, and Christ himself as the one who unfolds and discloses what was before mystery. Now, let's go back, and we'll cover some passages here briefly um, that many of you will be familiar with. So what is this mystery all about that Paul says it has been hidden from generations for ages? If you think about creation. You go back, God creates all. He creates it good. He creates man and woman to to cultivate and work in his creation and bear his image and continue on um, caring for the creative work that God is doing. And they rebel and they sin and they fall and death comes. It's interesting. God tells them in the day that they do that they're going to die. They don't die. You say, well, but they died spiritually. They did, and I'm not discounting that. Um, but a part of biblical interpretation you run into sometimes is going, oh, huh. I guess God meant something else sometimes than exactly we think with a given statement. Um, but I will say the scripture is very clear there. I mean, from there to Ezekiel to the New Testament, that the wages of sin is what? Death, your sinfulness, your attitude, your estrangement from God has earned you death. And I don't think we take that seriously. I don't think you and I think, I mean, the only reason you're alive today, right now, instead of God calling your card for your sin, is God's own grace and mercy. Now, those of you that are in Christ, that death has been taken care of. Jesus paid it. Remember, we talk about this. It's not that you're just set free. It's that your sinful nature, that death is required to atone for, was in ways that we accept by faith, retroactively applied to Jesus' death on the cross, and you've died that death with him. That's why you're able to be united with him also in his resurrection. But those of you that haven't, that sentence of death hangs over you still. And the only reason you're here this morning, the only reason you didn't drop dead on the way is that God is being patient with you and showing you grace. So we see that. We see uh, God coming to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. We'll just call him Abraham. And he says this in verses 2 and 3 as he makes a, a covenant, a binding agreement with Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. 
I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, so the mystery begins here, okay? Uh, If you know the downward spiral of sin in Genesis 1 through 11, you know that again and again and again, God is having to uh, work with a corrupted generation of people that gets worse and worse and worse. Finally, he comes to one man, to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. He chooses Abraham, and he chooses to create a great nation out of Abraham. But if you're Abraham and even subsequent following generations, you have to wonder, how are all people on earth going to be blessed? Abraham had to wonder that. How are all people on earth going to be blessed through me? Now, we've all got that friend, right? Who's like, I'm a blessing to the entire world. But short of that, Abraham had to wonder, how is God going to do? There's a bit of a mystery here. I don't understand it. God, uh, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt, and they're still growing. Uh, First, they get to Egypt through um, Joseph's life and through a famine, and they uh, go to Egypt, and they've got good relationships there. But they multiply as God said they would, and as, as the Jewish population, the Hebrew population in Israel or in Egypt grows, Egypt gets nervous. They get enslaved. They're treated rough. They cry out to God. God hears them. God responds. God sends uh, Moses, his brother Arian, his sister Miriam, and they help bring the people of God out and guide them into the desert. So God delivers them. He gives them the law. You'll remember that, the Ten Commandments and greater law fleshed out. In Leviticus, he tells them how to live and he reveals to them the holy standard of God for human beings. And then he gives them a sacrificial system, right, to atone for temporarily the times that they're going to break that law, the sin that has invaded the human race because he knows they're going to break it. And the sacrificial system given is bloody and time-consuming and unpleasant, and it goes on and on and on and on. He gives them a tabernacle that moves where they do uh, to assure them of his presence. And maybe at that time they're thinking, maybe this is how he's going to do it. Maybe this is how um, these, these sparse places that we find God's uh, covenant promises extending to the ends of the earth, maybe this is it, right? Maybe it's going to be uh, like some of the traveling shows today. You know, the tabernacle's gonna come. It's gonna be in France for a year and then it's gonna uh, go down south. Maybe it'll be in Brazil for a year and God will be there and God will be here and God will be there. Maybe that's what God's going to do. Eventually they get a temple and then it's even more. Well, maybe everybody's going to come here. God gives them prophets to remind them over and over and over of who they are as God's people to call them to repentance, uh, to renewal in God. Move all the way into the New Testament. We run into uh, the Great Commission, with many, which many of you know at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry where he says in verse 16, when the 11 disciples went to Galilee, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Can I just tell you right here, verse 16 is a key that we don't pay a lot of attention to because we know like uh, 18, 19, and 20 are coming. But part of, of, of being around when God does great things and getting to see God move in ways that strengthens your faith and power and understanding what God has 
in place for you is walking in obedience to him. The key to the disciples even seeing Jesus and hearing from him at this time right here is that they went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. I'll just make a little worship plug here, right? Because all the time that I was growing up, I grew up in church, so I knew you should go to church, but that's it, right? I just knew we're Christians and you should go to church. Um, but part of why we gather is to be formed by God into the image of Christ as a people. We gather to hear from God, to be in his presence, to declare to ourselves before him that he alone is king. And God does things when his people gather. And you never know when and what you're going to miss when you choose to miss. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Some doubted. Then Jesus came to them. And also, if you ever think, like, if Jesus would just come and sit down and have a chat, you'd be good. You would not be good. He'd get up and leave. You'd think, ah, something must be wrong with me. I think I dreamed that. Right? I mean, they had seen the resurrected Jesus already before this. Right? They'd been with him. They'd touched him. They'd seen his physical body. They also knew of his crucifixion, and they were all confused like we are, like maybe he wasn't dead. They knew that Romans knew how to crucify people and make sure they were dead, but they still doubted. Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this is um, go and make disciples is in the passive, not active tense. Jesus isn't commanding you to go somewhere. Some do. God calls out some people to go to foreign places around the globe, what we might call frontier uh, ministries and missions. And they go do that. But this is passive. Jesus is saying, as you're going about your life, as you're involved in the daily activities of life, where you work and where you live, in your season of life, where you recreate, where you shop, let the center of your activity be about helping others follow me. Making disciples. Baptizing them is the first step of obedience. Those I call into a relationship with me. Helping them be taught and learn and grow in the truth. We go on to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The church is, is gathered, it's huddled. The church really isn't even born yet. The disciples of Jesus are gathered uh, and huddled. And in verse 6, they gather around him and ask him, Lord, at this time, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're like They still don't get it. They still think after all of this, his closest followers... And this should give us hope. It should also be a word of caution that creates humility in us. That sometimes we can deeply, sincerely get things wrong. And we need to be taught. And we need correction in our lives. And we need to be open that, man, maybe I'm misunderstanding this, right? Because they're still thinking it's a, a political geographical movement. They just don't get it. So Jesus says to them, in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set out by his own authority. 
The short version of this that we use around our house is mind your own business. Mind your own business. Verse 8, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And to the ends of the earth. And, and when, he, when he talks about this, um, this is more a promise than a command. You will be my witnesses. He's simply stating an observation that's going to be true. The Holy Spirit is going to come on them in power. They, through circumstances that they couldn't see now with the uh, stoning death of Stephen, are going to be spread out. And the church is going to continue to grow. The gospel message, the good news that Jesus Christ is king, that he is the reigner and ruler of the world, that he alone redeems men and women and restores us to fellowship with God, is going to spread like wildfire. It's going to spread like COVID, but bringing life instead of death. But I want to deal with this phrase. We talked about this a little bit just to, kind of as an aside yesterday in membership class, but Jesus tells those disciples on that day in Jerusalem that the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and you're going to be my disciples in wider and wider circles, even to the ends of the earth. Do, do you realize that we are the ends of the earth? To a first century Palestinian Jew listening to Jesus, this place is the end of the earth, right? We're not here having come up with the gospel about two years ago, now taking it to the ends of the earth. We were the ends of the earth to which Jesus was referring. Now, I'm not dogging missions. I'm saying we need to think rightly about the teaching of Scripture and rightly about our calling today with regard to furthering the evangelistic work of Jesus on earth. I looked this up just for fun this week. Jerusalem to Atlanta, if you just went there. 6,446 miles. 6,446 miles. Anybody want to walk that? I know you can't walk on water. Let's just say you could, right? 6,446 miles. Jesus gives this command 1,700 years before the United States even came into being. 1,700 years. That's 68 generations 68 generations before our nation was even born. Now, in case 68 generations doesn't sound like a lot to you, we're roughly just a tad over six generations since the Civil War. 68 generations. The gospel has advanced and advanced and advanced and advanced, and the center of it has moved, like the, the sending center of the gospel. Was at first the ancient Near East, and it moved. It went up into Western Europe and sent from there. It went over to North America and sent from there. And it has moved again now into the Southern Hemisphere where many countries like South Africa and others are sending far more missionaries, as funny as it will be, to the Northern Hemisphere and the Western world and other places to share the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And what's also interesting here, they're still struggling. This is still very much a Jewish thing, Right? It's a Jewish thing. I don't know how many of you were ethnic uh, practicing Jews before you became followers of Jesus. Most of us were Gentiles, right? But you, if you look in Acts chapter 10, God sends Peter to a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius was a, a military, a Roman military officer. He was a God-fearer, so uh, he believed in the one true God of Israel, 
but he hadn't come into the nation. He's a grown man, and he had an issue, if you can imagine, with being circumcised. And with all their food regulations, he wasn't into all of that. So he's like, I'm just going to uh, continue to, to worship and to trust your God, but I don't want to be brought into the community. Um, God sends Peter through some miraculous circumstances. Uh, Peter begins unpacking the truth of Jesus and the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And they're saved. The Holy Spirit falls on them right in the middle of Peter's message. And Cornelius and his household come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's repentance, salvation. They're baptized. Cornelius becomes the first Jewish convert. And Peter goes, huh, I guess the Jews are in. I mean, I guess the Gentiles are in, right? I guess God's in. What's so funny, though, is in Acts 15, like, the church leaders gather to discuss whether or not God can do what God's already doing. Uh, let's get together and talk about this. I don't know that. I don't know. We have to, let's vote to approve what God's already doing. So they get together and decide whether or not God can save Gentiles. And what's funny is Paul and Barnabas and Peter are like, brother, he already is. We've observed it. We've seen them um, getting the same Holy Spirit that we got. We've seen them worshiping the same God we worship. So God's already on the move there. And what's interesting too here is like, there's no track given there. There's no altar call. When the Holy Spirit wants to save somebody, he saves them. That's how it is. We did a, an e-news article on this uh, some weeks back on why we don't regularly practice, you know, a time of invitation or altar call here at the front. Um, but you see this not only here with Cornelius, you see it Acts 2, 37. I mean, that's how the church starts. Peter's preaching, and before he's even done, man, the Holy Spirit just comes on the people. There's conviction. When the Holy Spirit wants to work in a person's life, he works in their life. Whether or not we're using the system we came up with about 220 years ago. He's going to do it. People are going to be saved. God doesn't wait on us or need our systems to do it. So this is happening. All that God promised Abraham back in Genesis 12 is unfolding. And they're just beginning to get glimpses of this mystery. How is God going to do this all around the world? Let's look at one more passage before we, before we return back to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, another one that will be very familiar to many of you from 2 Corinthians. Paul's uh, writing 2 Corinthians specifically in response to um, written questions he had received from the church in Corinth. Verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Many of us learned this as if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, which is acceptable, but the preferable translation here, the closest of what is actually said here in the original language is new creation has come. Part of what we're seeing in the, in the transformation and the regeneration of men and women by the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the new creation that God has promised, new heavens and new earth, the meeting place and the dwelling place of heaven and earth has come together in your hearts. You've got to have the temple background that Paul and his readers and his listeners had. The temple as this place where heaven and earth meet. They come together. It's been transferred by Christ into the lives of his people. The old has gone. The new is here. This is why you, like if you're not careful and you read this, you're like, I'm not sure I'm a Christian because I've still got some old. Would any of you testify to that this morning? I've still got a little bit of old in me. More of you should testify than that. Yes, 
Yeah, you still got, I can tell you, you still got a little old in you. I've still got a little old. Maybe we should ask your spouse and friends or your children. <laughs> Mommy, daddy, does your wife husband have any old still left in them? Because what Paul is not saying here is that all of a sudden, everything that was old in your life, those old tendencies, the old fruit that's been born by sinfulness has been just taken away and everything's new in you. He's saying the new creation writ large, this cosmic reality that is now at place in the world through the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is now true and evidenced in your life as you come to faith in Christ. Verse 18, all this is from God. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and don't miss this, and gave us the ministry of of reconciliation. You're not just saved in some kind of uh, individualistic, personal, private way. You are saved into the mission and ministry of God. You and I are called to be witnesses of the mystery through changed lives, through verbal testimonies, through the way that we love those around us and love one another. Verse 19. This ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry or the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We represent him to the world. You represent a different kingdom, a different nation, if you will, to this nation. You represent a different kingdom, a different nation to your neighbors, to the people you work with. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God, Paul would say. Be brought into Christ by God's grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus. This is the witness of this mystery. This is the mystery. Not that people were going to have to go somewhere specific or something specific that represented God was going to have to move around the world, but that his presence through his spirit was going to explode all over the world into the lives of believers, crossing all ethnic and racial and geographical boundary lines. And that now, the presence of God doesn't dwell in the temple, doesn't dwell in the tabernacle, it dwells in you. You, Peter would say, are God's temple, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. God dwells in us as the people of God. This is the mystery that all of this was going to take place down through Abraham's line through one man, Jesus Christ, and through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 2. My goal, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Again, so many prepositions in here. They make it fun. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Let's just stop there and go back to what we were talking about earlier. When you and I live in chronic states of discouragement or in chronic disunity with other believers, when churches live, remember Paul is writing this to a church almost 
everything that Paul says, not every single admonition or command uh, or promise or observation, but almost all, the vast majority in Greek are in the plural tense. It's given to you guys, as they would say on the East Coast. It's given to you all. So this is not just an individual thing. When churches live season in and season out in chronic discouragement, when churches live season in and season out in some level of disunity, the people as a church, that church as the body of Christ, misses the full riches of complete understanding. The full riches of complete understanding. Which is, in short, knowing in fullness, in ways that provide deep and beautiful assurance, in ways that propel us to live missionally to the glory of God and for our own joy. We miss knowing the mystery of God, namely Christ. We miss the beauty and power of what God has done singularly, singularly for us in Jesus Christ. Some of you right now, man, you blew it this week. You had a rough, nasty week. This was not your week, right? You said things you wish you could take back. You did things you wish you could take back. Maybe you're not a sayer. Maybe you're the quiet game player, right? So when you get mad or when you want to send somebody a message, you just sulk, right? You just get real quiet. I'll show them. I won't talk. Sounds like a blessing, I shouldn't have said that. That's too far. I know in Mar- I know silence can be really painful. Um, just depends on who it is. But some of you, you look back and go, this was, what, right, this was not my week. Huh. I would not get most valuable player in life this week. Can I just tell you, instead of sitting in that or groveling in that or pretending like that didn't happen, why don't you just bring it to the Lord? Why don't you just say, Jesus, I did not have a good week this week. You know that already. Confess your sin to him. Ask for forgiveness. Claim his promise in 1 John 1, 9 that when you confess your sin, he is faithful and just not only to forgive you of your sin, but to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. Ask God to return to you the joy of his salvation and get up and go. Get back into your Bible. Continue walking prayerfully with the Lord. Ask forgiveness of someone that you may need to ask forgiveness from. And stay in community with other followers of Jesus. And if you're not in community, get in community. Get in a Bible study group or a small group somewhere where you truly can be known, cared for, challenged, and encouraged because there's so much at stake if you choose not to. Paul is directly saying here that there is a connection between the choices we make, the way that we live, and our ability by God's grace to be given a grasp of the fullness of the knowledge of God, the mystery of God in Christ, in whom, he says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like, look, we don't 
only go to God, but God ought to be the primary place we go. Our first impulse ought to be prayer. And I got to tell you, like, I'm a a linear thinker. I I think rationally, I want to pick things apart. I want to find out what's going on. I want to read more, study more. I want to get my head around it. So uh, this this is not natural for me. Whenever there's a problem or an issue, naturally, I want to attack it cognitively and figure out, okay, what caused this? What is this? And what caused it? And how do we go about it? But first, can I just say, we ought to go to God. God, help me with this. Walk me through this. Some of you right now, you've got problems in your life right now, this morning, that you're struggling with. And can I tell you, before you go on wherever you've been before, maybe spend today and this week just putting it before the Lord. And just be sincere, write out, hey God, here's what I would like to see happen. Here's what I'm asking for you, from you. And put it before him again and again and trust him, knowing that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge rest in Christ. And as you make a habit of doing this, you come to so know Christ and Christ's word that it is very difficult for others to deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Let me ask you this morning, as the band makes their way um, back out here and we prepare to respond to God's word, both through worship, through communion, by reflecting uh, on the mystery and the beauty of God in Christ. How's your, how's your discipline in Christ? How's that going? We're called to be a disciplined people. Discipline means we do things even when we don't want to, right? If you want to, it doesn't take discipline, Right? Like if, you're a, if you say, I'm a very disciplined eater, and I say, well, what foods do you love? Well, none of them really. Then you're not a disciplined eater. You just don't like food much. If you say, I love all food, God has declared it all clean, and it's fantastic, and yet I'm disciplined. That is discipline. How firm is your faith? This is what Paul ends with here in verse 5. He says, man, even though I'm not absent, uh, even though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit. And I'm so excited, I'm thrilled, I'm delighted, he says, to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Some of you, man, your discipline has just waned. For a long time, you were very disciplined. In the spiritual habits that have characterized followers of Jesus, gathering together large and small, spending time personally um, in the word of God, Journaling, praying, spending times in solitude and silence, fasting. But you drifted away from that. When you and I drift away from those kinds of disciplines that God has given us as great gifts, we make ourselves very uh, very susceptible to fine-sounding arguments that are not the gospel. And we make ourselves very susceptible to missing the full riches of complete understanding that are available to us through the mystery of God in Christ. This was Paul's concern for Colossians, and it's God's concern for us and for you this morning. I want to ask you just as we close, is it this morning, could you say with sincerity that the primary yearning of your heart is that Christ will be magnified in your life? Not for more success, 
Not for a better tan. Not for less wrinkles. Not for a spouse. or Maybe a new spouse. But that Christ would be magnified in you. Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.